Has anybody ever said to you, that's really beneath your dignity, you should behave better, you should have the higher ground? Sometimes we say that to other people. Sometimes our great people even say it to Hashem. What is beneath a Jewish person's dignity? But let's have a look at the interaction between Yosef and his brothers after he accuses them of theft. In Pasuk, the Pasuk that says, The brothers say to Yosef, God forbid, or it's embarrassing that, our, that your servants, referring to themselves, would have stolen your goblet. So Rashi explains two ways that that Chalila could be translated. One is Chulinhu. It's mundane, meaning to say it's something that is beneath our dignity. Lonu, Fas. Leshoin Genai. It's almost like a, it's an undermining expression. And then it says, Vitargum, the interpretation of how it's explained in Aramaic is Chos Lavodecho. Withhold that or stop that, stop that from your servants. Chos Zois. That David would, so to speak, interfere or stop us from behaving in this particular way. And he says that many times that kind of expression is used in the Gemara. That David should keep the negative away from us and give us peace. It's not the first time in Torah that we've seen this expression, Chalil Elocha. Freer in Parashas Vayera, by the time of Avram and Tumayvishten, remember when Avram Avinu in Parashas Vayera was negotiating with Hashem to save Sodom and Amorah, there he also said, should the righteous be destroyed together with those who are wicked? There too, Avram Avinu uses the expression, he says, woe unto you Hashem to do such a thing. And there Rashi also explains what means. It is beneath your dignity. It's mundane for you. People will say, that's how you, they should behave. You wipe everybody out indiscriminately. And that is inappropriate to say about Hashem. So Rashi has dealt with the word twice. We have to understand in that case two things. Number one, how come the very first time the expression appears in Parashas Vayera and Rashi usually deals with an issue the first time it appears? There Rashi is happy to say, means it is beneath your dignity, Hashem, so to speak. Whereas in our Parashas, where it's Yosef's brothers addressing him, Rashi is dissatisfied to just simply say it's beneath us. And there is Moshe Flishin Genai, and he adds, it is a disparaging expression. If that expression, Chulin, needed to be explained, then Rashi should have done what he normally does, which is to explain it the first time it appears back in Pashas Vayera. Second question, not only does Rashi clarify that means that it is disparaging, he also offers a second possible interpretation based on the explanation or the translation in Aramaic. Favos is in How come when Avram Avinu is speaking to Hashem Chulinhu that it's mundane or beneath your dignity is good enough as an explanation? Whereas over here suddenly it's not good enough and we need a second explanation as well. Why? So the Rebbe is going to tell us immediately what the difference is. There's a significant difference between Yosef and his brothers. Uh, sorry, Yosef's brother speaking to him versus Avram Avinu speaking to Hashem. The beer in them explanation is this. In well, Avraham Avinu, when he says Chalil Elcha, is addressing Hashem. In Hashem's reality, there's no such thing as things which are mundane, which are ordinary. 
is the Rebbe Genub Tzazogin as I say Skadavar as Ebi Tmiyas and therefore when Avraham Avinu raises this big astonishing question are you going to do this are you going to wipe everybody else it is Valchulin Hulukho that's enough to say to the Ebi it is a mundane activity it's how people behave not how God behaves and that would be good enough reason to say for the Abish that such conduct, such a decision is completely un- unexpected and not the way that Abish should behave. In Hunza Parashah, but in our parashah, we're not talking about God. For We're talking about humans. Who do also do mundane things, even Yosef's brothers. Ordinary activities. If you argue that a particular behavior is a mundane behavior, that's not a good enough reason to say, and therefore a human shouldn't do it, because that's what humans do. In this case, taking the silver goblet. It's not good enough to say that's an ordinary behavior. You've got to say that's a terrible behavior. What would be the great shock and horror if a human being did something which was ordinary behavior? You've got to say it's more than ordinary behavior. It is horrible behavior. Therefore, Rashi here has to clarify what's bad about the accusation of Yosef is not just that he's asking or he's accusing them of doing something which is ordinary. He's accusing them of doing something which is disparaging. How dare you accuse us of behaving in such a way? Here, Rashi is showing us that the word chulin doesn't just mean ordinariness. Rather, here the expression chulin is something which is disgusting. And therefore, out of the question, we're decent humans. We don't do these kinds of things. Clear and easy distinction. But that explanation on its own is not good enough. When would it make sense to say that mundane behavior is actually disparaging? Well, if you were talking about somebody who is so dignified or so elevated or so spiritual that to say they're dirting their hands with ordinary activities would be an insult, then it will make sense, okay? Yeah. If you say something is mundane, it's a, it's, it, it's a negative expression. In that circumstance, with such an elevated, special, dignified person, to call something mundane would be a slap in the face. Yeah, then Taka, if a person whose life is dedicated to higher ideals is now being accused of being involved in ordinary things, that would be an insult. In fact, if you're dealing with somebody who is all spiritual or all dignified and you're saying, you're doing such ordinary, you know, mundane things, that actually would be a very serious insult. Because if you're talking about something which doesn't suit that person's elevated status, then it should be so out of the question. Well, if you if the whole attitude or the whole definition of this person is that this is a very elevated, dignified person, and now you're accusing them of doing ordinary things, that in itself is, in a sense, worse than saying they're a ganif. But is that the context of Yosef's brothers over here? Really, what Yosef's brothers needed to prove over here is they are not ganovim. They did not steal the silver goblet. It's a bit weird that they would try to defend the fact that they are honest people who haven't stolen by saying that would be mundane activity for us. You're effectively using, as the Gemara uses the expression, you're trying to explain something based on something that hasn't yet been explained. In other words, Yosef 
assuming he is the viceroy of Egypt, doesn't know their status. So, oh, it's beneath our dignity. I don't know. Who are you? What is your dignity? To use the argument that, well, we surely are not thieves because if you know us, you'll know that we don't even engage in mundane things. Well, he officially doesn't know them. Besides the fact that they're not even speaking directly at this point to Yosef himself, they're speaking to his non-Jewish representative who's come to arrest them. Who happens not just to be an ordinary non-Jewish person, but an Egyptian, Erev Asa'oretz, who belongs to the most depraved society at the time, who tell this person that we don't engage in mundane activities. They'll look at you like you're crazy. What's wrong with that? Everybody engages in mundane activities. They should have just said clearly, we're not Ganovim. So really, the logic is that if the brothers wanted to prove that they would never have touched something that didn't belong to them, they should have done so. They shouldn't have used riddles and said, oh no, that's mundane for us. They should have just said, that is a crime, we're not criminals. Because that's not a full explanation, therefore Rashi has to bring a second interpretation. Because this argument on its own, although it works in Parshas Vayera beautifully, over here leaves something unanswered. And therefore Rashi gives a second explanation that it means chos. Oh, prevent us, please. Keep that away from us. May it never be, so to speak, in front of Hashem that we behave such a way. There, that fits perfectly with the argument that they're trying to make to the Egyptians. God forbid that we should actually steal. In fact, not only saying, God forbid, should we steal, they're saying that the Ebishter should prevent us, may Hashem protect us from even doing accidental theft. In other words, maybe it slipped into somebody's bag and we don't know about it. May the Ebishter protect us even from that. It's a very strong argument, a lot stronger than saying it is mundane or beneath our dignity. So why doesn't Rashi put that as the first explanation? Because it's not typical in Tanakh that the word Khalilo actually means chas. May Hashem protect us. Therefore Rashi has to tell us, well, look in the Gemara and you will actually see this expression. And that's also why Rashi has to leave this to the second explanation because it is not so close to the Pshat of the word Khalilo in Torah. And he has to say that the very first way to try and explain the word is from the word Cholin because that makes more sense in the context of Tanakh. So now we get it. We understand the difference between Parshas Vayera where obviously it is an insult to suggest that Hashem engages in the behavior of mundane people whereas with Yosef and the brothers it has to be a little bit more than that and that's why he needs two explanations as well and he has to say Cholin in its own right or actually means Loshan Gnai that it's, that it's a, a, an insult. So what can we learn from this? The Heirov and the Pirshashin Avedas Hashem the lesson is we have to know what is beneath our dignity as Jewish people. So Al-Tarebbe tells us in Torah that we have to learn something from every story of the Aves, but not from every detail of the stories of the Shvatim. The elements of Avraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov have to play out in all of our lives. But the other, specific, the other more specific stories that are told in the Torah, like for example the stories of the Shvatim, it's quite possible that a person won't have any of those elements reflected in their life. So they're not necessarily as encompassing or generic stories. In other words, the Pshat Defun, 
Nicht jeder Eid muss haben in sich, die alle Begriffe und in Jan Muhammadim, was damit hat sich ein Schäbe ausgeteilt von der anderen. It's not necessary for every one of us in our spiritual journey to experience those things that were unique to one of the Shvatim as opposed to the others. However, if there's something that impacted all of the Shvatim, likelihood is it does have a lesson for us. Aber die Begriffe von Jan Muhammadim was eine Gewinn bei alle Shvatim, if there's something more generic that impacted all of the Shvatim, als Bonim von the others who obviously are the children and heirs to Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, those are things that must affect us. This is a story of something that, that touched all of the Shvatim, so it must have a lesson for us. The fact that all of the brothers together, all of the Shvatim together say that is mundane behavior and therefore an insult to us is not coming from our Shevet Prati. That wasn't something relative to a specific Shevet. Now from the Shvatim was something that affected all of the brothers, i.e. all of the Shvatim. is moving as Daniel from Chulun Hulano is in a Gea Yad and So therefore that principle that something is mundane and beneath our dignity has a lesson for each of us as a Jewish person. What is that? That Jew has to know Chulun and Jews don't go together. We have to know that our very essence and our whole being as Jewish people has to be holy. The Jew and the mundane physical world are actually worlds apart. Therefore, for a Jewish person to engage in the physical world in the ordinary manner that other people do is actually an insult. Should be something that is completely off the table. A Jew does not engage the physical world purely physically. That consciousness that we don't engage the world in an ordinary way, but rather in a holy way, shouldn't just be something we have deep, deep down inside of our neshamas as, as an awareness. Like in the story over here, where the brothers were speaking to a non-Jewish Egyptian man saying, this is who we are, our awareness that we don't belong in the physical mundane world as physical mundane people should be something which is so obvious and so clear that even the non-Jewish world sees that when they look at us. Um, <coughs> Look at the Shvatim. They were convinced that for them to say we don't engage in ordinary mundane activity was compelling enough for a non-Jewish Egyptian that they, the non-Jew would recognize you're right. Jewish people do not engage the physical world as a physical world. That means that our experience of knowing how holy we are and that the mundanities of this world are off the charts for us should be so much part of our lives that it is completely obvious to other people out there, the non-Jewish world, they look at us and they should see that about us. You will ask, but the Torah says we have to engage the world. Six days we have to work within the world. Which means that during the days of the week, the time that we engage the world, we actually have to engage the world. We actually have to earn money and eat food, etc. Well, we got to be clear. That is not the Torah giving us license to engage ourselves in the mundane world. Neither but to the contrary. It's actually an, an, an imperative for us that we have to master the world and elevate the world as 
The halacha says you take something which is holy and ordinary and you tackle and deal with it in a way that is, would be considered holy. That's what Jewish people are supposed to do. The way that we achieve that is by directing all of our activities to higher purpose and being aware and conscious of Hashem in every single thing that we do. Until eventually we actually sanctify all of the ordinary mundane things of this world. And we elevate them to a sense of ordinary or entry level holy and then eventually to absolute holiness that's what a Jew is so do we engage the world yes do we engage the world in the way that of the world no how do we engage the world mastery to transform and elevate the world now how does a Jew reach such an evolved level which means that a Jew who's following the, the instructions of Torah to engage the world and yet simultaneously remaining remaining completely aloof from the world not only aloof from the world but looking at engagement in the world as an insulting degrading state to be in how do I get the, the ability to do this <coughs> where do I find the strength it's because we're plugged into the Ebeshta and the Ebeshta engages the world while remaining aloof from the world. Which means the kind of divine energy that is relative to and therefore gives life to the world. Is never held within the world. And it's not possible that the normal activity of godliness running the world should become mundane, even though it is the godliness to run the world. Look at how Avram Avinu speaks to the Ebishter. He doubles the expression. It would be mundane or degrading for you to behave in this way. It would be degrading or mundane for you to, um, to ju- you know, not to do justice in the world. Let's even assume somebody can make the radical comment, Eibishter, are you going to do something which has not followed justice? Well, that would be enough reason to say to Eibishter, how can you kill good people together with bad people? So why does Avram Avinu add to that and say, is it right, <coughs> the judge of all of the earth, not to do justice? He's already made his point. Lahomis Sadik in Russia is bad enough. Because Avram Avinu wanted to emphasize something else. Avram Avinu is saying, yes, Abishta, we know that you play a role of judge of earth, which means you engage the world at its level relative to its needs. A perspective of godliness by which the elements and creations of this world are valuable. They actually have a role to play. They deserve to be judged by you and therefore you will reward their behavior when right and you will give them consequences when they behave wrongly. Avram Avinu is emphasizing even when the Ebeshter engages the world, he's not, so to speak, within the realm of the world. So therefore the ordinary experiences of this world are an insult to Hashem if he were to, so to speak, follow them. And seeing as even the part of Abishta, the energy of Hashem that runs our world, has to remain aloof from the world, cannot be captured by and defined by the realities of the world, we have at the core of our being, that is a piece of Hashem, and therefore we have that same aloofness. 
As I feel when it vanemt sich mit inyoni cholin, even at the time <coughs> where we are engaged with the world in the mundane things of the world, vertenet nit for sinze, we don't allow it to envelop us, to, to catch us. In our truest self, even while we engage the world, we remain aloof from the world. In fact, we are so aloof from the world that the mundanity of the world is insulting to us. We don't want to go there, we don't want to be associated with it. Und aus Guf ist der Tan, was Aid hat im Kerzibe machen die Chulen bis, as sie sollen sein, Chulen genas altar, as akedisch. That's what allows us the opportunity to master the world and to transfer transform the mundane things of this world to become holy things. Why? Because we're not sucked into the world. We stand above the world. Therefore, we can influence and transform the world. The reason being because the truest self of who I am is somebody who is beyond the things of mundane life. Therefore, we're not defined by them. That lesson speaks to the broader message of our parasha, the parasha which essentially introduces the process that would lead to the Egyptian exile and of course the Geula that would follow. This is Miketz. This is the parasha that tells us the catalyst that brought the Jews into Egypt, which eventually became the Egyptian exile. Which is the precursor and the, so to speak, ancestor of every kind of goddess that exists. We well know as Hasidim what the Rebbeim said about Golos, that it only affects us superficially. Only our bodies were handed over to the, the, the forces of Golos. But our Neshamas were never dragged into Golos. And were never entrusted into the subjugation of those who took us into Golos. So how could Golos impact a Jewish person? Only Well, the only Jew who is susceptible to Golos, who Golos can harm, is the Jew who is invested in the material mundane things of this world, the physicality of this world. But when a Jew stands on the pedestal that he should stand on, which is to look at the world and say, mundane things, that is an insult. I don't go, that's not me. Because what I experience is the light of my own neshama. That's real for me. And the essence and light of my neshama is completely detached from anything of the mundane world. Well, if my reality is determined by my neshama, my neshama was never in Golis, the Golis doesn't truly impact me. And that's actually why what was the final story that got Yaakov and, co, Yaakov and his family into Mitzrayim and eventually into the Golas? It's because of the trumped-up charge of theft where they found the silver goblet in Binyamin's bag. The Rebbe is going to give us a fascinating reason why this is. The only time that Golas could touch a person is if, in the per- if the person has an experience, even if it's in a very light, very subtle way of acknowledging or being susceptible to the things of this world. The world is not completely insulting to me. Listen to what that means. Das was bei sein Nichtschul gefahren zu haben bei sich dem Gewehr Kessel. Auf wieder schon Leute bei Diosam. 
The fact that they actually landed up having the silver goblet in their possession without them even knowing about it. How could such a thing happen? Nothing is by chance. It could only happen that this was the method Yosef was able to successfully use against them because they were not 100% divorced from the mundanity of this world. As the axiom goes, that if we were to look from the perspective of a person's neshama, they would be unable to do something against what Hashem wants, even accidentally. The fact that a person is exposed and susceptible to doing something accidentally wrong indicates that they're not as aloof and protected from this world as they should be. So therefore the fact that there could be a theft, not of their doing and not of their choice, is an indicator that they were not as divorced from Gashmas as they should have been. So, so now that we understand that this is the positioning statement of a Jewish person, Golos is superficial to us. It can only affect the superficial parts of who we are, our physical self. Whereas the truest self is always in a state of Geula, that gives us an insight into how the Golos itself works. In other words, Golos is not as real as it appears. Why did Hashem create Golos and send Jews into that state? Only to prepare us for the inevitable greatness and elevation that would come as a result of Golos. In other words, the Geula that would follow. So the goal is not the Golos and suffering, it is only the Geula that follows. Which means <coughs> that our descent into Golos is a superficial experience, not the real story of what's going on over here. What is really going on over here? What does Hashem really intend? The greatness, the rebound, the uh, elevation that will follow because of the Golas. That gives us an insight into the really well-known Gemara about the fact that Mashiach is born as the Golas begins. As the base Amigdash is destroyed, so the Redeemer is born. He would have to be a very old man by now. What does it mean? The message really is that as soon as Golos begins, Geula begins. Because the Golos is not a means, it is not an end in itself. The Golos is only a part of a process, the goal of which is Geula. So the minute Golos begins, it has to be that Geula is beginning, because that is the only value and purpose of Golos. And that's part of what we have to do as Jewish people is to create this consciousness and awareness. When we successfully serve the Ebishter in such a way that you can feel who we are on the inside, that we really are Neshamas, the Neshama was his in Golos, and our reality is our Neshama, which is obviously beyond the constraints of the Golos. So, as we succeed in doing that, illustrating that we are all about Neshama, and that is our truth, that also inter- automatically uh, illustrates that the Golos is not about Golos, then Gilifun de Gula, but the Golos is there for the purpose of Gula. Now we, Rashi has illustrated such an incredible point to us and the Rebbe often says that Rashi teaches things on multiple layers and alludes to things even things that are at deeper levels of how we interpret Rashi is typically about Pshat but he also alludes to things at the levels of Remez and Soid. 
So gefindmen oicharem as if temin yinagolos vehagulanal in perishashi basim fun unzer parasha. We're going to see the same kind of allusion, that hint. That's uh, it's something that Rashi is going to point out. It's actually quite a diktuk, uh, you know, grammatical thing that Rashi points out with a deep message towards the end of the parasha. At the end of the parasha, what do the brothers say? How can we justify ourselves? There's obviously a libel against us and we can't defend it. So Rashi takes that word nitzadok and it's mefarish. It says as follows. L'shoin tzedek. The root of that word is tzedek justice. And then he explains grammatically. If you have a word where the core root of the word starts with the letter tzedek, and it is then presented in an expression of Reflective, passive, in other words, something impacts something else. Now, in Tesbim came Tov, Veinan, Itenas, Tifneos, Yushanishu, Yusayatab, Alabemta, Yusiso Iker, you stick in a Tess into that word, and it comes after the first letter of the root of the word. So the word said it gets a Tess, it's slapped in, in, in between it, and now instead of, instead of the word being Nitzadak, it's Nitzadak. Rashi gives various examples. And then he says, If you have a word where the core word, the root is a letter, it starts with the letter sin, uh, sorry, with the letter samach or the letter shin or sin. There also it's put into this form of this reflective passive state. Then you get a tuft that gets stuck in between the letters. Arash bring to Gmois, and there also he brings examples, and we're going to look at those examples. Freer from Verita First he gives examples of words that start with a samach, soval, sochal, and then and then words that start with a shin, it gives a shamar shaylil. So that makes sense, because samach is earlier in the aleph base, so you first give those examples. But then on his Messiah, after giving both sets of examples, Rashi concludes with an example that goes back to a samach, where Moshe Rabbeinu says to Paroi, you are still delaying or playing games with my people. Says Rashi, that word is from the original root of the same word that means a path that hasn't been completely cleared or paved or made easy to pass through. Down from Fashtain, we have to ask three questions. Allah, first of all, in Sayyidina Pirish Rashi, if you follow the logical order of how Rashi is explaining things, first he starts off with letters, uh, with words where the root word starts with a samach. And then he moves to words that start with a root that has a shin at the beginning. He should have used the example of Mistolel, which is a word where the root starts with the Samech. He should have put it in the same list of other words he was using that start with the Samech. And logically, he should have first tackled this word with the Samech before he got onto the other words with the Shin. Question one, question two, base. Why does Rashi say that word mistolel comes from this root, a path that is not cleared or paved? Go have a look in Parashas Va'ira. And what, how does Rashi explain there the word mistolel? As mistolel is megizas mesila. There he explains that it is from the word mesila, which is a path, not the nature of the path, the clarity of the path, the paved nature of the path. Why does he change his opinion here? And lastly, give off Avos Dr. Rashi Megizas Derech Loi Selulo Nipikitsa Megizas Selulo. Why does Rashi have to give us words that are apparently not relevant to understanding the grammar? He could have just said it comes from the word Selulo. Why does he have to say Derech Loi Selulo, a path that hasn't been properly cleared or paved? Derech Vezokin Pashas Vero Megizas Mesilo. So is the Rashi. This is a great example of where Rashi delves into the deeper understanding of Torah here, Remez. And he's telling us this. 
The Chilak Tzvishen Unzer Parasha and Parashas Vaira is, there's a massive difference between our Parasha and Vaira. It's two ends of the same story. Parashas Miketz, Red Canal, Vengdem, Ketz, Fun, Zman, Achon, Atzu, Golos, Mitzrayim. Parashas Miketz is all about the catalyst for the beginning of the Golos in Egypt. Whereas Parshas Vaira is the beginning of the story of Geula, Haschalas Geula, because it's the beginning of the plagues. Especially when you consider the Gemara tells us that already from Rosh Hashanah, people were no longer working as slaves in Egypt. So in Parshas Vaira, we're already at the end of the of the Golos. So Miketz is the beginning of the Golos, and Vaira is the beginning of the Geula. And their meat is moving us in Pashas Vaira by the Aschala Sagiula. So, therefore, when Rashi is talking Pashas Vaira, the beginning and unfolding of the Gula, Sakjashia's Mistel is Megizas Mesila. It makes sense. The word Mistel should be associated with a path because the path is being forged. Agamas Paris Mistel Levilti Shalchom, despite the fact that Paro is playing delay tactics over here and he doesn't want to let the Jewish people go, doesn't matter. That's because Paro is stuck and he's completely dead to the idea that the Gula has begun. But what's really happening over here? The path has been opened. There is already a clear road to follow to Gula. Paro is just a stick in the mud. In fact, the, the very behavior of Paro to delay the Exodus is given by says that's because I want to publicize the miracles much more so let Paro push back so we can do greater miracles and we could do more miracles so therefore in Parashas Vaira Rashi is going to see in the word Mistolo the path to Geula Yet the same word when Rashi is looking through the lens of our parasha, where the theme of our parasha is the beginning of the problems, the beginning of the golos, is the Well, then at this point we're looking at a path that is not clear and there's nowhere to go. It's looking like golos. We're not seeing our way clear. Yet, here's an important point. Rashi is giving us two different interpretations of what? It's two interpretations of the same word. What word? Rashi would never give us two different explanations on the same word unless those two explanations actually link with each other and kind of add value to each other. What Rashi is telling us is even the beginning of Golos where the path appears not to be clear. Is It's still a path. It's a path to Gula. You just don't see it yet. It's just not a clear path yet. That's because we don't know the direction. But David just sees the path. It's not a clearly trodden path because Outwardly, this still looks like Golos. But what is it really? Is it Derech von Loy Selula? Golos Guf as in from It may not look like it, but Golos is a path to Gula. And Masila to the Gula Valdikavon and Primus from Golos himself is Yetzias Mitzrayim or Matan Torah. Because anybody who really knows what's going on understands that Golos is the path to Geula and by extension to receive the Torah. If we can't see it yet, that's because it's a premature state for us. It's not because it's not true. On the river blank Rashi, the Dugma from Mistel Be'ami, and that's why Rashi quotes this example of how the Samach gets interrupted by a Tov, and he uses the word Mistel. Where does he bring it? He's quoting now something related to Geula. 
In unser Parasha, wo setzt sich noch wegen der Achana Vascholes Agolis, Rashi wants to incorporate that in his interpretation of our Parasha, which is describing the beginning of Golos. He wants us to already know where we're going. Because we need to know that right at the beginning, tough and dark as it may appear, the goal is there, the path is there. Geula is the objective. Which also explains why Rashi does not use this example of Mistotl in the logical sequence of where you think it would belong, but he puts it right at the end of all his commentary. He's hinting at the fact that what will be the conclusion and the objective of all the things we are currently reading about in these parishes. We're reading about the Golos. We need to know it's all towards an end game. Mistoidel at the end, it's going to be Gula. And that end game is already manifest. Now we just don't see it. The same principle applies to where we are now waiting for Mashiach. As soon as a Jewish person really gets to appreciate that Golos is superficial, it's not real. And so the truth of who I am is, I'm beyond Golos. I'm already plugged into the future. That realization and that consciousness and the behavior that goes with it will already get us from Golos to Gula. Or more correctly, to reveal the detail, the truth of what Golos is all about. And that brings and manifests the Gula with Mashiach, and it should happen immediately.